Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're, we'll talk with uh, former U.S. Representative and Ambassador to Denmark, Richard Sweat, about the work he's been doing with a Princeton University initiative on restoring the constitutional powers of Congress. Ambassador Sweat serves on a subcommittee dealing with the power of the purse. And specifically, we'll hear about the subcommittee's ideas for improving transparency and accountability of the congressional spending power. Then we'll take advantage of Dick's experience as, a, as an ambassador and world traveler to get his perspective on what's going on in the world, both specifically in, uh, in, in the Middle East and, and in Ukraine and how that affects the uh, challenges here at home. And then in our final segment, we'll look at a new proposal to cut Social Security taxes or that at least cut taxes on Social Security benefits and why that would not be a good idea. Steve Robinson has a new issue brief out on that. As usual, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join the conversation. Ambassador Sweat, Tori and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Thank Bob. you, Bob. Well, as I said, I want, uh, I want to get your impressions, uh, Dick, on what's going on around the world. But uh, before we get there, I'd like to touch on a subject closer to home, which is the dysfunction of the congressional budget process. And more specifically on the work that you've been doing about the devolution of, of the spending power from Congress to the executive branch. Tell us about this Princeton initiative that, that you're part of. And I'll, I'll leave out why a Yale man is involved with a Princeton initiative. But anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> um, first of all, what I'll say is that this is something that Mickey Edwards is heading up at Princeton. He's uh, on the, on the faculty there now, um, and uh, they've been looking at this for several years now, and it has all come about uh, because uh, the actual diminution of uh, powers that Congress has over the, the budget-making process has become very problematic, and, uh, and a lot of people are very alarmed by that. And so uh, I was invited by Mickey and... Uh, uh, one of the the, um, the co-chair of the uh, subcommittee that that uh, I serve on, uh, Tim Penny, who's a dear friend of mine, and as we can recall from the Concord Coalition way back when the Penny Kasich uh, initiative, I handled all the one penny out of every dollar reductions in the public buildings that the government owned all over the world back then, and uh, as we also can recall. Uh, those of us who are around then, I don't mean to pass uh, uh, judgment on the ages of, of our colleagues, uh, Tori and, and Steve, but what I do know is that back then, uh, we were unable to even get a penny out of every dollar uh, reduction. That that was a, 
a real eye-opener. Uh, my first year in Congress, trying to go after the things that I understood most, which were the, were the building infrastructure, and uh, no, no, no go. So uh, we're still struggling with that. And over those years, those last 30 years, we have seen um, Congress's authority, Congress's ability, Congress's power to control the spending um, be diminished by the executive branch. And so that's what this uh, subcommittee has really gone after is what are the things that can be done to restore that power. And one of the things that, that we've looked at is transparency, the lack of transparency that uh, the budgets uh, operated under. Many people have no idea what those discussions are or how they arrive at uh, whatever percentages or amounts that are arrived at. And we on the subcommittee felt very strongly that that transparency needs to be re-implemented and, and the American public needs to have access to the process that this uh, very difficult uh, budget management process undergoes. To give a couple of uh, examples about executive branch encroachment that's uh, fresh in people's minds is the, the student loan forgiveness initiative from uh, President Biden last year. And setting aside whatever you think of the idea on a substantive ground, it, it did amount to, in the eyes of many, the executive branch making a decision which had repercussions of several hundred billion dollars, three, of, three to, to 500, depending upon how you count it. And it was not something that went through the Congress. I mean, it was now the Supreme Court set that aside, but it's not untypical of certain administrative actions that are taken that have huge budgetary consequences and the Congress is not a part of it. Well, I think you can add to that, uh, Bob, just the unbelievable prolificate spending that we've seen uh, because of the COVID uh, crisis. I mean, th there has been such an avalanche or a uh, drinking from a fire hydrant, if you will, um, display of funding that just has been spewn all over the place out of the executive branch, not going through the, the proper channels of, of, of approval, um, that has ballooned our, our deficits. Yes, we're now over a, a trillion dollars for deficits, let alone the fact that we're over $30 trillion or um, we're at 98% of our um uh, you know, GDP for our debt. And, and those are things that uh, uh, none, I certainly never believed would ever happen and uh, am just shocked by what I see today. And just one more example, I think, of that that I know came to mind was um, earlier this year, uh, and anybody correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong on the numbers, but I, I think that a, an administrative reinterpretation of uh, food stamps and what the appropriate ma market basket was and the cost of that, uh, the uh, the administration made an adjustment in that, which CBO estimated would add a, a couple hundred billion dollars uh, to the baseline for that program over uh, the 10 years. And it just happens. <laughs> um, it's not something that is subject to, to congressional review, I guess, right now. Of course, Congress can take action if they want to, but uh, but I, I think what your report was suggesting is that things like that should have a, should come back for some sort of automatic review of, of uh, agency action. Well, and that would give us a two-year 
look at budgetary decision making as opposed to a four year. You know, if it all comes out of the executive branch, the only way that you have any real recourse is to is to get involved in the presidential elections. But if the Congress is involved in this on a two year basis, you've got at least in the House of Representatives the opportunity of voicing your concerns and letting the members of Congress know that that they aren't being appreciated or they shouldn't be doing what they're doing or or even that they are being applauded for for good decisions that they're making but that kind of distance from the uh the decision making i think both in terms of proximity and in terms of time has had a tremendously detrimental impact uh tori you want to get in on this sure um before we dive into some of the recommendations i just i wanted to talk a little bit about the role of, of Congress in, in this sort of devolution, I would say, of power or deference to the, the executive branch. I mean, we all know that leadership abhors a vacuum, but appropriations are not sexy, right? I mean, you, you look at congressional staffs today on the Hill, and there are more communication staff than there are policy in a member's office, um, mm-hmm. you know, appropriations, you know, takes time, homework, uh, stubby pencil drill, calculators, you know, reading the fine teeth of, of, of legislation. And when it comes to appropriations time, you know, we talk about two parties in in, in Congress, uh, Republicans and Democrats, but when it comes to appropriations times, you've got re- Republicans, Democrats, and appropriators. And your appropriators are the ones that are going to spend the time to, to do the homework. And they're the ones that are writing, you know, they, they have the power of the pen, they're writing the bills. And so appropriations bills are littered with transfer authority, reprogramming authority that that they basically just hand to the executive branch saying, if you need to shift money from this account to that account, you know, and, and, and lawmakers uh, that aren't ranking, fi- you know, that, that aren't appropriations members, they're just, they're not paying attention. They're not reading the legislation. They're not dedicating staff to read the legislation. So I, I guess maybe I'm answering my own question, but you know, how much of this is, is Congress's fault for not doing their own job? Well, I think I think you make a very good point. And the fact of the matter is, is that Congress doesn't have time to do their own job. As you say, they're choosing to focus rather on getting t- TV time or getting you know in front of their constituents because it, it doesn't have um, the, the, the impact of reading a piece of legislation and voting in an informed way, having read that legislation doesn't have nearly the impact on their political career as being able to get out and do sound bites and, and get into the social media and do all the things that that put their name before their public. So that's a, a real, I think, um, uh, problem. And, and you say deference uh, to the executive branch. I don't think there's any respect between the, the two um, uh, bodies. I think it's, it's really just a, a matter of making decisions. What's in my best interest as a member of Congress? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former Congressman Richard Sweat about the need to restore transparency and accountability to the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, excuse me, the Congressional Budget Process. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former congressman and ambassador to Denmark, Richard Sweat, about the need to restore transparency and accountability to the congressional budget process. Uh, Steve, your question. 
Yeah. So b- before the break, we were talking a little bit about how, you know, you have the regular members of Congress and the appropriators. And sometimes it seems like the appropriators are running running the process, certainly with regard to spending. But one of the interesting fights we just saw recently in the news uh, when they deposed uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, some of his opponents were making the argument that Congress had failed to do its job because it did not pass the 12 appropriation bills, that instead they were looking at doing a CR or perhaps an omnibus where they roll all the bills into one. In terms of improving transparency, how much of you know how much how much of, how much of a problem is it? The fact that Congress, you know, routinely just lumps all the appropriations into one big bill, you know, as opposed to actually passing the twelve individual separate bills. Steve, I think you hit on a very, very important topic, um, and and that top is topic is trust. Uh, and I think every time you have a process that is um, ignored or is not treated with respect or is not held, people are not held accountable for. I think that takes another uh, chink out of the armor or uh, another uh, rung out of the ladder that, of trust that the public has for the government. And and I think in in you know making things transparent and making people accountable, uh, you have to start with small accomplishments and small steps first because that's how you build trust. Is you don't build trust by running into a stranger and giving them a big bear hug. You you start by having a conversation about you know common values and common ideas and ideals, um, and and you agree on the small points and you build that relationship from there. And what we have in government today is uh, a government where everything has to be you know the big uh, the big action. It has to be you know Obamacare. It has to be something. That is is gargantuan, and if it doesn't get done exactly as people say it will, which is of course uh, one of the problems with overpromising, but if it doesn't, that has a negative impact on the public's trust in what the government can do. And so I think you know what you're addressing really is that element of trust. How do you build that into the accounting system, into the budgetary process, so that people can see that? they're making progress step by step and not just sort of waiting until the big mess is either thrown together or thrown out at the end. So is there some sort of process reform that would encourage Congress to deal with each of the bills separately one at a time as opposed to just rolling it all into one? Well, I I think that would be well worth looking into. And um, certainly if there are deadlines, they should be held to be kept. And if they aren't kept, there should be consequences for those things having been missed. So my feeling is, is that there needs to be a broader, more transparent analysis of all of these different steps, and that we need to start figuring out how to incorporate the accomplishment and the accounting for uh, not accomplishing those steps um, in the members that are dealing with those particular um, uh, legislative or um, a- accounting processes. One other thing that tends to uh, shift responsibility to the executive branch is emergencies. You know, when the president declares an emergency under the National Emergencies Act, I think it was from the late 1970s, it it gives him certain powers, 
that seem to never end. I think you wrote in the in the report something about uh, maybe reforming the National Emergencies Act so that they would automatically expire. But I know that uh, presidents have relied on that to do things under the emergency powers that seem to go well beyond anything that was contemplated by the original uh, implementation of the act. We were talking about this earlier with the COVID crisis. I mean, it just was a uh, opening of the floodgates for money to be distributed throughout the country for people who couldn't go to work or for, you know, the medical vaccination program. All of these things, as good as they were, um, seem to have been implemented without any real regard for their cost. And uh, I think that that's something that, you know, we have to be realistic in dealing with. But I don't think that uh, it necessarily gives us carte blanche to do whatever we want with whatever we have. And I think that that's going to be something that in the coming years, we're going to have to figure out how to regroup and pay for if if we're ever going to reduce the size of our debt. Corey. Yeah, that that uh, brings me to one of, of of the other issues that you talk a lot about in this uh, in this paper, and that is the apportionment process. I think many voters, Americans in general, would be interested to learn that, yes, Congress controls, you know, how much is spent. The power of the purse belongs in Congress. But the executive branch, specifically through the Office of Management and Budget, budget controls then how that money is spent. So Congress decides how much, but the executive branch decides how. Can you talk a little bit about the appropriations process and what are some of the recommendations uh, by this, this subcommittee for changes? Well, one of the things we talked about is earmarking. And, and we um, do not support earmarking because it sort of addresses or is a byproduct of what you're talking about, Tori, whereas um, there may be an, an, an appropriated amount of money but nobody knows where it's going to go until you know the earmarks all appear on the legislation, and some of them may have absolutely nothing to do with where that money was originally intended to go. So I, I think you know again that that is all part of the transparency issue, and if if people know where that money is supposed to go and it can be demonstrated that it is going where it's supposed to be going. That has, again, a positive impact on building back the trust that people should have in government that they don't at this time. So in, in terms of, of accountability for money that, that Congress does or does or in some cases doesn't appropriate, I, I don't know how, how much you followed the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, this was created after the financial crisis back in 2008-2009, and Congress decided that instead of even though it's a federal agency, but instead of appropriating the money for the administration of the agency, they gave it the authority basically to tap money from the Federal Reserve. And this has been a, a source of endless controversy. In fact, the, the Supreme Court is trying to decide now whether to, to, to you know to to take that case. Um, what are your thoughts about Congress, in a sense, creating a federal agency that is not appropriated directly by Congress? Well, first, I have to tell you, Steve, outside of yourself, if we did a poll of the entire population of this country, I think we would come up with a handful of people who who actually found great joy and and uh, and uh, solace in, in following that particular uh, statistical collection of facts. But as to your question, you know, uh, again, I think uh, that anything that we can do with 
uh, the accounting system of our government that demonstrates that we are adhering to a set of agreed upon values or a set of agreed upon processes that result in funding going where it is supposed to go. Uh, I'm not so concerned about the specifics as I am about the um, the aspects of, of what we're um, trying to deal with. Um, one of the things I've, I've always grappled with as a congressional staffer is the need between government to be responsive, especially in times of emergencies, but just to be responsive as things change, but also the need of government to be accountable or, for example, in this case, the executive branch to be accountable to Congress for how it spends money. And how do you resolve that tension as a lawmaker? I mean, you want you want government to be nimble. You want it to be responsive, especially in times of you know war, terrorist attacks, viral outbreaks, um, you know, c- civil unrest. And we're we exist at a time right now where Congress is very, very polarized, very divided. You know, the ability to to get anything done, um, even to respond to a natural disaster, for example, is very, very complicated and it, and it's slow. So, in, in terms of of, I'm just curious about your 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 thoughts uh, as a as a former member of Congress, but also as a person uh, on this subcommittee. How did you sort of uh, reconcile within yourself? You know, this tension between we need to be responsive, but we need to be responsible. Well, the first thing is you've got to get people to sit down and talk to each other, and that's not happening in the Congress. So when you have a a system for communication that isn't working, you're not going to be able to solve those problems. So I would say the first way you've got to do it is is you've got to lock people in a room and get them to have that conversation. Then, Then you can start finding the solutions to the questions and the problems that you're articulating, Tori. But, but if people aren't talking to each other, that, that's not going to happen. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former Ambassador Richard Sweat about the challenges of uh, improving transparency and accountability in the congressional budget process. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages when we'll turn our attention to the global security challenges. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former ambassador to Denmark, Richard Sweat. And in this segment, we're going to turn our attention to two specific global security challenges, the terrorist attack in Israel and the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Dick, I want to begin with events in the Middle East. You know, we we certainly don't have any crystal ball about what's going to happen there, but um, I guess first question is, do you see any possibility of a widening conflict? I honestly don't think that that will happen. I think that um, too much is at stake. Uh, My main concern is that the appropriate responsibility will not be ascribed to the appropriate party for what began this whole conflagration. And, you know, when you have a terrorist organization that that does an act of terrorism, they should bear the responsibility and that should be the the end of that discussion. And what this has revealed in 
communities all over the world is that there is a vibrant uh, system of beliefs that is anti-Semitic and that doesn't have the ability to discern what a terrorist attack is versus a a provoked a provoked uh, response. And so my concern is that that we are still seeing the dark underside of humanity um, with these kinds of protests. Um, with regard to what Israel has to do to defend itself, um, I think we're watching that play out, and um, uh, we don't know to what extent that will go to a full extreme. Uh, I think everyone is, is uh, I would hope, expecting that the response will be um, significant and uh, uh, sufficient to um, inhibit or prohibit any further attacks by Hamas. But, uh, you know, uh, we went into World War II to stop Nazi, the Nazis in Germany, not to stop Germans. And, and I think that there is a difference between the Palestinian community and Hamas. And, and that distinction, uh, I hope, will emerge once these uh, countermeasures have been uh, engaged and, and carried out by the Israeli defense forces. Well, just a quick follow-up, and, and, and to your point, assuming that there's a ground invasion and assuming that it's successful in some way in displacing Hamas, what comes next for governing Gaza? I mean, you'd have an ungovernable territory, and nobody seems to want to assert responsibility for it. Well, that's where you have to identify the Palestinian population as not being members of Hamas. And, and uh that's going to be a very difficult uh, sorting, uh, filtering kind of exercise. I don't know how in the world that can be done, um, you know, to the fullest of extents. But again, I, I draw our attention back to what happened after uh, Nazi Germany fell. You know, the Nuremberg trials and all of the, the various uh, things that, that happened uh, with regard to dismantling the Nazi state in a smaller scale, maybe, but at a deeper rooted level, uh, is going to have to be done uh, with Hamas as well. And uh, in doing that, separating Palestinians who want to take uh, leadership positions in their community will have to be identified. And and if that resource or if that skill set doesn't exist, it will have to be uh, trained and, and uh, developed. And so I think it's not going to be a short-term and easy uh, process. I think it's going to take time, and it's going to take a lot of a lot of people uh, doing a lot of things to to try and make this work. Steve, yeah. So c connecting this a little bit back to our earlier discussion, uh, there's been a lot of controversy right now, um, both in terms of providing additional uh, assistance to Israel. Um, there's been discussion about whether or not we're going to continue the level of support we have to Ukraine. And, uh, of course, you know, we've got natural disaster emergencies. And, of course, there's been discussions of whether we provide assistance to Taiwan. So you have all of these sort of differing uh, desires to provide assistance. And there people have different views on each of them. You know, do, does it from a from a political perspective, you know, when you have, you know, this big d desire to do a lot of different things, uh, do you roll it all into a big package where you, you know, sort of like, you know, the thing that people sort of don't like about horse trading? It's like, okay, well, I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. 
how much of that horse trading is simply, you know, necessary to get things done because people do have different perspectives and how much of that is a, you know, the kind of thing that the American public doesn't like and doesn't want to see because it's like, you know, everything gets rolled into one and everybody gets their little piece of the pie. You know, is that a good thing in terms of getting things done or is it a bad thing in terms of undermining accountability and and transparency for Congress? Well, I'll tell you first and foremost, uh, one of my partners that I'm working with in Africa is an Israeli gentleman, and he has been called up uh, from the reserves back into full service. And I'm very concerned about his welfare. But I tell you about that because we're doing this work in Malawi. Malawi is dependent upon the grain that comes from Ukraine. So when when you start mixing all these things together, you you gave Ukraine and uh, and and Russia and Taiwan in your example. I'm broadening it to Malawi and Israel and so forth. But um, the problem is that um, everything is interconnected. So if we support Ukraine in any fashion, that is a deterrent to China and Taiwan. So I think it's important that as the United States works to resolve the problems in the in the Middle East with uh, with Hamas and Israel, or works to uh, support Ukraine in its fight against the um, uh, Russian uh, invasion. I think those things are also investments that go against deterring China from doing something with Taiwan that would cause uh, a, a real problem in that neck of the woods. So uh, it's very difficult to separate these things entirely. And I think from that point of view, they're all connected as well. Corey. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about the speaker's race. Uh, as a former member of Congress, I'm, I'm hoping you can set, share some insight there. I'm wondering how you advise a newer, moderate Republican member of, of Congress who's trying to figure out, I mean, Jim Jordan, let's face it, is is has been a proponent of government shutdowns, has been a proponent of of myths that, that Trump won the, the 2020 election. If you're a moderate Republican, especially if you're a moderate Republican sitting in a district that was that Biden carried uh, in in 2022, how would you advise them on this this speaker's race? That's a very good question, Tori, which I'm not sure I um, am capable of answering. <laughs> you know, I think that as a moderate Democrat, I mean, I, I confronted these kinds of questions on my own party side back when the Democrats were in disarray and, and the Republicans seemed to all be marching in lockstep. So, you know, my feeling is that typically this country doesn't come together until there is a external crisis, whether it be or, or an internal crisis. I mean, the Civil War, you can certainly use that as one, World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression. I mean, these are all events that, you know, snapped the country back into the attitude that we're all Americans first. We're not there yet. And I fear that we haven't experienced the kind of disruption and pain that is necessary for us to get there. I'm not sure that that your moderate Republican example is is compelling enough that there is an individual with that kind of of um, moderate perspective who has the voice, the stature, and the strength of authority to mm-hmm. command that kind of of respect. I think people are going to snap into this thing because of an external 
concern that is far greater than anything that we're confronted with right now. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's interesting you say that because I was thinking, you know, who is the 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 Republican equivalent of Nancy Pelosi, right? I mean, she could go in there, crack some heads together, and say, "All right, we're we're moving together, lockstep, and this is what we're going to do." You know, who is that person on the Republican side of the aisle? And I don't know who that might be at this point. Yeah, you know, and and I think that that's that's something that none of us have uh, our finger on the pulse of because it's it, you know we. The Republican Party, as I said, when I when I ran for Congress, it was the Democrats who were in disarray. I, as a moderate, was able to find a place and work within a um, a, a fluid Democratic um, leadership. But uh, I I don't see the Republicans um, mm-hmm. coming together. Uh, and and quite frankly, I think the Democrats are 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 uh, so much further to the left than when I was mm. in Congress that that they're operating on, on a different set of assumptions as well. We're running out of time here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking with former U.S. Congressman and Ambassador to Denmark, Richard Sweat, about the global challenges and the need to restore transparency and accountability to the Congressional Budget Office. Tori, Steve, and I will be right back to discuss a Social Security reform proposal that we're not crazy about after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are still here, and we're talking about a new Social Security reform proposal. Steve, a couple of weeks ago, we we saw this uh, come out from uh, Senator Pete Ricketts of Nebraska, and uh, essentially it would cut income taxes on Social Security benefits and make up for the trust fund shortfall by crediting the trust fund with general revenue transfers. Uh, You looked into this idea from the broader perspective, historical perspective of taxing Social Security benefits. And we just published this week an issue brief that you wrote. So tell us what you found. Um, As as certainly most Social Security beneficiaries are aware, depending on their income, they potentially have to pay income taxes on their Social Security benefits. A very unpopular thing for Congress to do, but this actually goes back to 1983 in the Greenspan Commission when Social Security was facing insolvency. So this is a long-standing policy that was very hard fought, uh, the idea that we would tax Social Security benefits. And the reason that that's important to Social Security is that we don't just take those income taxes and, and put them in the Treasury. We also credit those taxes to the Social Security Trust Fund so that those taxes on benefits are an important part of the solvency of the program. So when someone comes along, you know, 40 years later and says, well, you know, this is very unpopular. And, you know, at the state level, a lot of states will exempt Social Security from the state income tax. Now, of course, the state income tax doesn't go into the trust fund. So there's no damage done to Social Security by exempting them from from state tax. But when you propose to get rid of the federal income tax on Social Security benefits, that is a huge, uh, will have a huge effect on the Social Security Trust Fund. Uh, according to the trustees, on a what's called a present value basis, 
you know, a lump, what's the lump sum value of all the taxes that we're going to impose on social security benefits? It's about $6 trillion, which is equivalent to 28% of the unfunded obligations of the program. So in other words, the, the, the program has a shortfall over the next 75 years. If you repealed the taxation of benefits, you would increase the shortfall by nearly 30%. So this is not a small uh, mm-hmm. measure. Now, of course, in the legislative proposal, they propose to replace the lost revenue by crediting the trust fund with general revenue. Now, the problem, of course, is that taxing benefits produces real revenue. The government is running a deficit. So if you credit, you repeal the tax and credit the trust fund with general revenue, it's basically, it's an accounting gimmick. There's no real money there to to replace the the income tax uh, revenue with. You know, it it would significantly damage the solvency of of the program in real and you know in real terms but it would paper that over by pretending to credit the trust fund with the revenue that we no longer collect it's hard to, to talk about that as social security reform <laughs> not exactly hard choices tori uh you got any questions about this <laughs> i i mean i i you know i fully agree with with steve and on this it, it sounds like this is a you know this is a, a political piece of legislation, not one that's based in good policy. If for no other reason, um, you know, if you're if you're not concerned about the whole replacing real money to the trust fund with, you know, fake or accounting money, you know, this is also an unfunded tax cut for a lot of wealthier, you know, individuals who receive social security. And that alone should be a problem, right, Steve? Isn't aren't we talking about, I mean, because this tax doesn't fall on every social security beneficiary, right? Yeah. So when they enacted this proposal back in 1983, they created a, a sort of a floor so that your income uh, as, a, as an individual taxpayer, you have to have at least $25,000 in income. And then we phase in the taxation of your benefits so that you don't actually hit the 50% threshold um, you know, until your income is significantly higher. And then, of course, back in 1993, they added a new threshold, which starts at around 34000 for individuals. And then we will phase in the tax up to 85% of your benefits. And that money actually goes to the Medicare trust fund. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you know, if your income is below 25,000 or 34,000, you know, you, you don't pay the tax. And, and if you do, it's, it's at, a, at a lower level or, or a smaller percentage of your benefits are, are taxable. So, yeah, this is a, it's a very progressive policy where, you know, we exempt. I mean, I think the last time I looked at the, at the numbers, about a third of social security beneficiaries make so little that they don't pay income taxes at all. Another third, they pay taxes, but they're below those thresholds. And then the other third are above the thresholds and pay pay taxes on their benefits. So, you know, currently the proposal only affects, you know, a, a minority of, of all the beneficiaries. What's the uh, the distinction between taxing Social Security benefits, say, and, and taxing annuities or pensions? Yeah. So, you know, the, the tax treatment of retirement plans varies significantly, whether you're talking about uh, individual retirement accounts. You know, you have what, what are called the Roth IRAs and the, and the traditional IRA, whether you, you know, you deduct your contributions and pay taxes on your benefits or, or you do the reverse. If you have an annuity, so you have a, as a federal employee or, or a lot of, uh, you know, big, certainly unionized companies that still provide uh, defined benefit pensions, they pay an annuity. And under current tax law, you um, you are allowed to deduct from your annuity a 
percentage of your previous contribution. So as a worker, you contribute towards your pension. And then when you retire, you collect your pension. And what the IRS says is based on your retirement age. So if you retire at, say, age 65, uh, you would divide your contributions by your expected, your life expectancy. So they, you know, they make a, you know, let's say you live 20 years after uh, after uh, retirement uh, at age 65, you would deduct, you know, each year a 20th of your contributions that year uh, from your benefit and pay tax on the rest of it. So, so clearly from Social Security's perspective, you know, both with the income thresholds and with, you know, taxing a percentage of your benefits, uh, as opposed to a percentage of your contributions, Social Security is more favorable uh, than than either the tax treatment of IRAs or the tax treatment of an annuity. We don't have any uh, any reason to think that this proposal will get very far. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly politically, it's very popular. I mean, no Social Security beneficiary enjoys paying taxes on their benefits. So, yeah, they. I'm sure if you took a vote among Social Security beneficiaries, they would all all vote for repeal. Uh, but you know, from a from a fiscal policy perspective or good government perspective. Um, you know, the, the program can't do without this revenue. Um, oh, I say you can't. I mean, it would just so significantly, uh, in, you know, increase the the, uh, the unfunded obligations that I, I don't think that Congress, you know, I certainly hope that Congress would never vote to approve a policy like this. Well, yeah, you never know. But uh, I think I think you're probably right. Actually, this revenue becomes more important over time because the indexes are not uh, the, the thresholds are not indexed for inflation. So eventually more and more people become subject to the tax. Is that uh, how it works? Yeah, right. So the, the, the 25,000, 34,000 thresholds I mentioned earlier uh, for individuals, those were set back in 1983 and 1993, and they, they are not indexed. So unlike other parts of the tax code that, that you have indexing, those thresholds are not indexed. So over time, more people, you know, assuming income rises faster than inflation, um, they have the, the tax code uh, is indexed, but the thresholds are not. So more people will pay taxes on their benefits. And then it was intended that to be that way. This was the idea is essentially taxing benefits is a means test. And it was intended to be phased in slowly over time. And yeah, it makes it, it makes it a gradual reform right. like you would want to have. Exactly. So you give people plenty of notice that over time, a larger percentage of your benefits for a larger number of beneficiaries are going to pay taxes uh, on, on those benefits. Tori? I feel the need to, to jump back up to 65,000 feet. And we talk about how, you know, when Social Security was first established, it was a it was it was paid for by it, the taxes that are, you know, the payroll taxes that are that go into the system. It was self-funding, I guess, is the point that I wanted to make. Um, we're now when we talk about legislation that would change Social Security in, in a number of ways, we always talk about how, uh, you know, members su would support um, replacing those tax dollars that are now going elsewhere with general revenue transfers. Um, which basically means Social Security would draw from the general treasury. Can you talk a little bit about why a Social Security beneficiary might might see that or should see that as a as a political negative? I mean, what's what's the problem with financing Social Security out of general revenues? Well, I mean, historically, President Roosevelt realized that if people felt the sense that they funded their own benefits, that those benefits would be more secure, both politically and economically. 
And so he imposed the payroll tax so that people would contribute toward their benefits and essentially pay for them. And the program roughly followed that principle uh, so that the taxes in, payroll taxes paid in would cover the benefits paid out. But since 2010, we've been paying out more than we've been collecting in payroll taxes. And the danger of relying on general revenue is that essentially, you know, beneficiaries become subject to the political process of will Congress pony up the money? I mean, just like the example here, we're going to repeal an income tax, we would reduce the payroll tax, replace it with general revenue that we don't have. That from a political perspective makes the benefits less secure. From an economic perspective, it makes the program you know, less financially stable. So it, 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 do, it does run a risk. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I want to thank our guest, uh, Congressman, uh, former Congressman Richard Sweat and Ambassador to Denmark and uh, and Tori and Steve, as usual. Thank you for your uh, perspectives. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 